You're listening to the Weekly Sermon Podcast from Harvest Bible Chapel in Chicago. We're glad you're here. I want to invite you to grab your Bible, turn to the book of Acts in the New Testament, and get ready to study God's Word together in a series we call, We Are All Witnesses, Part 3. (laughs) Hi, it's good to see you. Merry Christmas, uh, or almost Christmas, or... As my daughter said this morning, it's, uh, I, sa- I said, Merry Christmas Eve, Eve. And she said, it's Adam. So I did. Anyway. Yeah, thanks. Um, I have a quick announcement or uh, request to make of you. Um, the announcement is, uh, at the beginning of the month, I was here. And I, um, I've been gone the last two weeks because I'm my 30th wedding anniversary. So I was on a boat, yeah. So I looked tan, it's because we were on a, a boat in the Caribbean with some friends. Listen, we're not cruisers, but if I look fatter, you know why. Um, but when I first uh, was here in the early part of December, uh, we were saying that we needed about $2.1 million to reach our budgeting goal for the year. Uh, as of now, to the end, we need about a million dollars more which is totally expected and stuff. So I'm just laying that out there and saying we can reach this goal. It's actually very doable. One of the things that we were hoping for is that the Lord would actually provide us uh, some money beyond that because uh, we're, we're really committed in the next couple of years to be partnering together with the Chicago Partnership downtown to, to um, plant 77 churches in the 77 neighborhoods of Chicago. Uh, I don't know if you know this, but our city is under duress And we think that the best way to solve the world's problems is through local churches. And so uh, we want to see more faithful pastors and more local churches in the city. And so uh, we're looking for as much as we can give to them in the next uh, year, two, three, we're hoping 10, 15, and see lots and lots of church planted down there. Um, So I commend that to you. Um, You need a Bible, and we're going to jump around in Scripture here in the next uh, few minutes. I'll tell you where we're gonna start. It's in Exodus chapter 34. Exodus chapter 34, verse six. So if you have a Bible, you can pop it open there, but keep your fingers at the ready because we're gonna be skipping around just a little bit in scripture. Don't worry, we're gonna rest on several passages and we'll talk about them in a little bit of detail. Uh, 30th anniversary, as I said. Uh, I got married when I was like 12, so. Actually, I think I was 21 years old. Didn't expect getting married at all when I, was, when I was 21, but that was what the Lord had for me. You know, when you meet the one, you're like, okay, what are we waiting for? And so with my dear wife, Jeannie, that's certainly what happened um, with her. One of the ways, though, that she came to actually love me was, as she tells it, one incident in the dining hall of my, uh, of my um, university. The dining hall was run by a company called Saga, so we just called it Saga. So you'd go, and if you remember, you get your tray. It was like an all-you-can-eat sort of thing back in those days. That's why they called it the Freshman 15, because you're not used to that. You show up, you eat a lot of food, and then you look like, like I went on a cruise. Like, like you got 15 pounds extra. Anyway, you get all you can eat, and then you, uh, you put it all on a tray, and you, and you walk out the door, and then there's this huge room very similar to this, with tables all over it, and you try to identify where your friends are, and you go and you sit down with them. Well, I was sitting at the, quite toward the back with all of my buddies, and 
Uh, Jeannie came out with her tray. Um, I was facing her, and she came out around the, the, uh, out of the food area, and she was holding this tray. She had a drink on there. She had a plate of food. She had a salad. She had all, I mean, a lot of the food was all there. And um, I don't know if she just wasn't looking where she was going. I mean, I know her well enough to know that sometimes she gets distracted by things in the distance. And so she probably was looking in the distance, and for some reason she just tripped and, you know, Seriously, all the, all of the food went straight up in the air and crashed on the ground. And you know, when you're in college and that happens, everybody in the whole place uh, turns, gets silent, and then there's some doofus in the back who's like, "Yeah, good job." And so they're clapping, and a few other people clapping. Now, my wife, uh, she dies when there's any attention on her, and uh, so I could see her just face turn white as a sheet. And went right down on her knees and started shaking as she was trying to get up. Now, I don't know what happened to me, but I immediately felt this, this draw to jump up, literally run over to her, and get down on my hands and knees and start picking up this thing. And I said, are you okay? And she looked up at me and was like, well, hello. Um, <laughs> Apparently, this was the thing that did it. So, boys, if you can figure out a way for her to drop her stuff and you just run right over. But uh, I, I helped her. And she told me later that um, that was one of the most compassionate things anyone had done for her at college. And I thought, well, yeah, um, I, I suppose it was. I just, I, you know, I, could, I couldn't help but think what it would be like if I were in your situation. And I threw everything you know, I wouldn't have been as nice as you, the guy who's clapping in the back. I would have picked the stuff up and started throwing it at him or whatever. But it's an embarrassing thing to have happen. And when you feel compassion with, for someone and there's something kind of goes on inside your gut, you sort of, it, you just sort of moved in your inner being to go and help and help them. Who's the most compassionate person that you know? So what I love about church is when you ask questions like that, there's always somebody who says Jesus, and that's the right answer, right? It's always, praise God, exactly. The most compassionate person, we could probably, you know, in our time, we think to ourselves, okay, Mother Teresa, you know, she passed away a number of years ago, but she's a woman who went and she served the poor and um, disenfranchised in Calcutta, India, among the slums there. Man, I, I've not been to India, but I've been to plenty of slums in my, in my life, and I cannot imagine what it would be like to serve people like that. She, she would touch the untouchables. She would hold the hand of people whose hands literally had never been held in their life because of their standing in the society. So yeah, pretty compassionate. I, I, I was in Guatemala City at one point, and uh, there, there's a dump in Guatemala City that has about five or 6,000 people who live on the dump. And there was a woman there who ran a ministry called the Potter's House, and, and she had just moved into the area. She lived just off the dump, but every day she came in, and she said, this is her ministry. And if you spent just a few minutes behind her walking around, you're like, I have no idea how this person does this. Like she trudges on top of the dump every day to go visit the people in the dump to make sure they're fed, taken care of, and share the good news of Jesus with them. I mean, the smell was just 
off the charts. And I remember following her thinking, this is a level of compassion I don't have a whole lot of experience with. We all have a picture in our head of the most compassionate people we know. But, but yes, Jesus, the Son of God, was the most compassionate human being to ever live. When someone ever asks us as Christians, who's the most compassionate person you know, our response should be, well, I know the most compassionate persons I know, uh, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And if somebody said, okay, well, prove it, I would just say, Christmas. We're going through this series, right? This is the last week in it as we approach Christmas, and the question we're trying to ask over the last four weeks is, what does Christmas teach us about God? I mean, it's a unique way for the King of kings and Lord of lords, right, the eternal Son of the Father, to enter the world in Bethlehem in a manger. I mean, there's all sorts of, why? Why choose this way, God? So it's going to teach us some things about who God is and what he's like and how it is that we can emulate what it is that he does and the way that he thinks about the world. And so today, we're gonna finish this series by saying, what do we learn about God? Well, uh, the incarnation, the fact that Jesus became man, God condescended, as we say, to us, is proof of his compassion. So here's what I wanna do in the next couple of minutes. I just wanna show you that you know, Jesus, did, God did not just become compassionate at the incarnation. He, he became, he was compassionate all along. So I want to show you the compassion of God in the Old Testament. And then I want to show you the compassion of God in the New Testament. And then I want to ask, what is our compassionate response? So let's look at the Old Testament, the Hebrew scriptures, and say, okay, what did, what did God's compassion look like in the Old Testament? So there's this passage in Exodus 34, if you've been around uh, Christian things at all, and uh, been around the church at all, you will have heard a story about how uh, the people of Israel were led across the Red Sea by Moses. Pharaoh was chasing them, right? Moses said, God says, let my people go. He says, who's this God that I should obey him? And they go 10 rounds of a fight. The last one is the death of all the firstborn and People of Israel actually end up heading off toward the Red Sea. Pharaoh comes to his senses and is like, we want our slaves back. And so he chases them. They're between the sea and Pharaoh. And they're like, oh, great, we're dead. Moses, it's the staff, the sea parts. You guys have seen Prince of Egypt, right? And they walk through on dry land. They get to the other side. Pharaoh's army chases them into the sea and it closes up. And this becomes the model of the power of God for all generations to follow. That you can pick the strongest, baddest king in the world, put him up against God, and he's nothing. The Lord will win all the battles. He saved his people out of slavery, and they sing this grand song on the other side, and they go across the wilderness. They actually go through the wilderness for a little bit, and they're going to this mountain, Mount Sinai. They get to the bottom of it. Moses says, all right, the Lord wants me to go up to the top, and I'm going to receive the law. He goes up to the top. The cloud descends on top. It's God with Moses. The people are in the bottom, down there thinking, all right, Moses, we're waiting for the law to come. 
but he's gone a long time and they're out in a land that they're not familiar with. And so they start thinking, man, we are just sitting ducks for all of the, the people of the land to come and kill us. We need some kind of God to protect us and the God that we had protecting us who was really strong. Yeah, he killed the, the baddest king in the land, but he's gone. He and Moses took off. I don't, we, I don't know, they're a cruise. But we're down here all alone, so we need something. And Aaron, Moses' helper, who wasn't very helpful this time, as all associate pastors are not helpful. <laughs> he said, we sh you know, you know what we could do? We could melt down all the gold you have and we'll see what comes out of the fire. And of course they did, melt it all down. It comes out of fire as a golden calf. So they start celebrating their new God, the golden calf, who's gonna somehow take care of them. <laughs> Which is straight idolatry. It's, you know, God saved you, he's, you're his own possession, and then you turn immediately to other gods. I mean, <laughs> Pharaoh and the, the Egyptians were just destroyed for being idolaters. And then the people of Israel go out in the desert and become idolaters. But they're not destroyed. In fact, Moses stands in front of God and says, hey man, don't, don't lose your mind on this. And God's like, no, just move aside. I'll just blast them. I'll start over you. Are you Jewish? And Moses is like, yeah, okay, see, we're good. Just move aside, right? I'm ready to go. Got my flaming arrow. I'm gonna take them all out. Moses talks him down and says, okay, no, just be, be gracious to them. Lord is. But he says to Moses, I can't be around them for a while. Lest my anger blast out against them. So you're going to have to stand between me and the people. And Moses does. But eventually Moses is like, God, I can't live thinking that every moment you might turn around and just blast the people. Right, rightfully, because they're all wicked. And they turned away to other gods in this key moment. I can't live like this. So the Lord says, he, he says, you gotta, you gotta show me, Moses says, you gotta show me that you're committed to the people. And the Lord said, all right. I'll show you how committed I am to the people. I'm, I'm gonna hide you in the cleft of, a, a cleft of a rock. Right? I'm gonna go kind of toward the mountains. I'm gonna put you away in this rock and I, my whole, all of my glory is gonna pass by you. Now you can't look at me or you'll die. I'm, I'm that holy but you can see what comes after me. So this is the Lord our God introducing himself formally to Moses. Yes? I mean, yes, they met at the burning bush, but this is where God's going to tell him what he's all about. What have we learned up to this point, Moses, about me? The Lord passed before him, Exodus 34, 6. And he proclaimed, the Lord. The Lord, what's he like? He's a God. See this word? Word means compassionate. He's a God compassionate and gracious. Slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and Faithless, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. If you, at this point in the Bible, were looking for a summary of what the whole lesson has been up to this point, that's it. God's like, 
all of it has shown you that I'm that, I'm that God. You ever been in a job interview and they ask you the question, so tell me about yourself. You know, what do you like? What are your strengths? What are your weaknesses? My weaknesses are I have too many strengths, right? You, you, you sit in this meeting, you usually pick the big one first, right? The one that you're thinking, okay, if you need to know about me, here's the thing that, that most defines me. The Lord passes by Moses in a massive introduction and a summary of everything that's just gone on with Pharaoh and the people of Israel and all of that. And he says, the Lord, the Lord, a God, what? Compassionate. It's one thing you need to know about me, Moses. One thing you've learned about me up to this point is that I'm compassionate. And you know, when, when Moses hears that, you got to think in his head that he's thinking, well, of course, yes. God judged the Egyptians for idolatry. The people of Israel did the same thing. God was just in judging them. What should God do to the Israelites? If the just thing to do for God was to judge the Egyptians, what should God do for the Israelites? What should the just thing he does? And the answer is to judge them, find the nearest body of water, and cover them over. But what does he do? Compassion. So in this weird way, what happens with Pharaoh and the Egyptians juxtaposed, right, stands across from what God did with Moses and Israel, and it highlights how undeserved compassion looks. See, because that's the thing that you need to know. The compassion of God is particularly shocking because it's given to the openly rebellious. I mean, think about the my, my, when my wife looked me in the eye and was like, hello, and I'm picking this stuff up off the floor for her. Let's be honest. The reason I got up is because she's pretty, right? Like, there's something to draw me to her. I, I, I thought, I want you to be the mother of my children. And, and I got up out of my chair and, and moved. There was beauty to draw me to her. But the crazy part about the Israelites and you and me is that there's no beauty in the sinner. There's, we're not beautiful. It's not like God's like, whoa, you guys are so great. I wish you could be on my team. We could win. There's no, be there's no beauty in the idolatry. It's, it's, it's putrid to God idolatry. He should run away. He should have nothing to do with us. But what does he do instead? He shows compassion. I mean, it would, maybe to put it as pointed as I can, imagine, imagine instead of Jeannie walking out of the, out of the food area she, alone, she walks out and she's smooching some other dude. After I had laid my heart on the table months earlier and said, I love you. And she said, no. And she took it and ripped it in pieces and ate it. And all, not, I mean, that's gross. But you know, like she just, my heart was broken and 
I was still pining for her, and she would almost flaunt it in my face. Look at this guy. Kiss, 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 kiss. And while kissing him, her plate falls over. If that's what happened, I'll tell you right now, I would have been like, serve you, right? And all of us would have been, but God, we ran away to another love. God's like, no, no, you're mine. Which is why passages like in the Old Testament, Psalm 78, their heart was not, talking about the Israelites, their heart was not steadfast toward him. They were not faithful to his covenant, yet he being compassionate atoned for their iniquity and did not destroy them. It's not just, guys, that he didn't destroy them. It wasn't just like, oh, okay, you guys can go by. He atoned for their iniquity. He acted on their behalf. He picked up all the food, went and got more, gave it to her while she still has her arm interlinked with the other love. He restrained his anchor often and did not stir up all his wrath. So, look, the God of the Old Testament, if anything else, he's compassionate. It's the first thing he puts after his name. Uh, Yahweh, a compassionate God. All right, well, okay, what about the New Testament? All right, remember, Old Testament, New Testament. What, what, how does the compassion of God start to be developed in, in the New Testament? Well, look, you all know the story, I'm sure, of uh, the prodigal son, remember? Right, Father, give me all my stuff, all the stuff's do me. And father's like, okay, here's all your inheritance. He takes it off, squanders it on riotous living, it says, and he comes to his senses and he decides, I gotta go back. Even, even, the, even the slaves in my father's house have it better than I do, even the servants. So I'm gonna go back and he should just treat me like a hired man. So he starts heading back and this is how it reads in, in Luke 15, 20, he arose, he being the, the prodigal son, he arose and he came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him. Right, because a long way off, I don't know, he's, maybe he's got binoculars or something. But he's, he's scanning the horizon, waiting for the kid to come back. And his father saw him and he felt compassion. And then he ran and he embraced him and kissed him, which are crazy things to do if you're a wealthy landowning man in those days wearing a long, you know, skirt-looking thing. You don't lift the skirt and show your knees and go, <laughs> run to your son. But this is what the Lord did. Why? Because of this thing called compassion. So what's really cool about this is that in the Greek language, which is what the New Testament was written in, there's a special word that, that, they, that the writers use for this compassion. You want to know what it is? Yes, of course you do. You're like, why else did I come here but to learn the Greek word for compassion? Here, it's called, it's splank. <laughs> Nidsomai. Let's say it together. Splank. Isn't it a great word? You know what it means? It's the moving of the bowels. And I'm not kidding. And You and I are like, hmm, that's uh, so... I don't know, sometimes I've splanked it But for them, the bowels is the gut, right? It's deep in your gut. So in other words, we, would, we use the word heart because we think that's gross in your gut. But it's the, it's the feeling you get 
when you see somebody in trouble and that inner urge to go and help. This is like didzimai. And this word shows, this is, it shows up every time you see a word compassion, quite honestly, translated in the New Testament, usually is some form of this word, this verb. Splank nitzimai. Jesus felt the splank nitzimai. So in a passage like Matthew 14, uh, now when Jesus heard this, heard what? Heard, heard what? Uh, okay, John the Baptist his, um, John the Baptist's uh, been out proclaiming that there's a one coming after him who's going to come and save the people of Israel. He also had other things to say. He was a prophet, and so he would say things about the, the, the ruling elite that the ruling elite didn't like. You guys know what happens when you say things about the ruling elite, right? You, you go missing. Well, in this case... Uh, he said to the, to the Herod, the king, he said publicly, Herod, when you stole your brother's wife, Herodias, you sinned before God and you're wicked and should not be a leader. Now, you, Herod was like, mm, I don't think I like that very much. But Herodias, his new wife, really didn't like it. He, you're calling her an adulteress. So through a series of circumstances, she works to get John the Baptist's head cut off. This gross scene where John the Baptist's head is cut off and it's presented to the king and Herodias on a plate. Ugh. And Jesus hears about it. He finds out that this faithful prophet who's been on God's side all the time has had his head chopped off. That's not the kind of news you like to hear. Now, when I get that kind of news, when I get really bad news, the first thing that I want to do is be alone. Yes? Like, I just need a moment to process it. Like, this is so overwhelming for me. And so it's not a surprise when Jesus heard this of John the Baptist's death, he, review, he withdrew from there in a boat to, to a desolate place by himself. But when the crowds heard it, heard what? Heard that he was going to the desolate place. Hey, did you guys know he's going to the other side? He's going to land in, you know, Galilee Bay. They followed him on foot. He's on the boat. They follow him on foot all the way around from the towns. And when he went ashore, <laughs> trying to be alone, he saw a great crowd. Everybody, they're all there. Isn't that what you want when you're really sorrowful and everything's going wrong in your life? You're like, cool, crowds to serve. You ever been peopled out? Some of you are like, I'm peopled out right now. <laughs> a big party at your house and everybody comes over and you're like, this is so great. Why are you still here? I just want to be alone for a few minutes. I need to have my time. I'm a bit of an introvert, so I'm like, oh, that's so great when yeah, my time. As Jesus is looking for it, he finds this great crowd. Now, if that's the case for me. I'm probably getting in the boat. And, hey, the boat's broken. Got to go back out, fix it. But he had splanknidzimai on them, and he healed their sick. It's not like, he sees them, and he's like, I can't, I can't not help. I can't not. I can't turn away and somehow think that this is just going to go away. It's not. It's not probably going to do that happen. So look, that language in the New Testament 
is probably seen the most clearly, and this is from the Christian Standard Bible. We usually use the ESV here, but the Christian Standard Bible really puts this better in, in a more succinct way. When Zechariah, who is John the Baptist's dad, finds out that he's gonna have this son, he sings this song, and at the end of the song, he gives, he gives a, a prophecy, basically, of what Jesus is gonna do. Here it is. Because of God's merciful, what? Compassion, the dawn from on high, he's talking about Jesus now, the dawn from on high will visit us to shine on those who live in darkness and the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. When Jesus comes, he's gonna be like the morning sun coming and shining on all so that we no longer fear death and that we are going to be led into the way of peace, not harm, wholeness. But why does God do this? He's talking about Christmas, guys. Why would God send his son at Christmas? He had some splank nidzimai. Did you see, though, I mean, the whole story of the Bible is basically a story about a God of compassion who can't help himself because inside of him arises this need to show compassion on those he has chosen. It's an amazing story. It's an amazing story, right? So Charles Spurgeon, who is one of my favorite preachers of all time, he was a Baptist pastor in the 19th century. When he was reflecting on Christmas, he said this about, when he reflected on Christmas and said, what should we learn about Christmas, about God? Here's what he said. The infinite came down to earth in the form of an infant. He who spans the heavens and holds the ocean in the hollow of his hand condescended to be nursed by a teenager. The king eternal became a little child. Let Bethlehem tell of his compassion. There was no way of saving us but by stooping to us to bring earth up to heaven. He must bring heaven down to earth. Therefore, in the incarnation, he has compassion for he took upon himself our infirmities and was made like us. Matchless pity. What is this? Right. Right. Christmas is all about compassion. All right, so there's the Bible study. So let's reflect for a minute. Okay, so if God is that compassionate, what kind of in, impact should that have on the lives of people like you and me living in in the 21st century in Chicago or wherever else we might find ourselves in the days ahead. So I got two things here. Uh, number one, I think the first response we ought to have is uh, to rejoice in God's compassion. And second, we ought to repeat God's compassion. But when I say rejoice in God's compassion, please understand, it is more important that you rejoice in it before you repeat it. It would be no sense for me to stand up here and say, okay, we'll see how compassionate God is. Go and do the same, even though the Bible says all that. But listen, before you go and do the same, you have to let the compassion of God overwhelm you. You have to. So look, if you're somebody who doesn't yet believe in the Lord Jesus here, we get lots of people who come to our church and are just testing Christianity. It's awesome. So great to have you, especially at this time of the year. I, I gotta tell you, what the compassion that God wants from you is for you simply to accept the gift of his compassion. That's it. 
He wants you, in fact, to admit that you need it. That's the only prerequisite. You just have to say, I don't have it together. There is a problem that I cannot address and fix. My life is a mess. Save me. Have mercy. Compassion. On me. Oh, God. Okay, so one of my favorite videos that I've been, I have to show this to you because I couldn't help not to. Okay, it's funny. I'm, it's funny. Uh, I'm going to show it to you. Uh, have a look at it. It's just an illustration. Here you go. It's just, there's all this pressure, you know? And sometimes it feels like it's right up on me. And I can just feel it, like literally feel it in my head. And it's relentless. And I don't know if it's going to stop. I mean, that's the thing that scares me the most is that I don't know if it's ever going to stop. Yeah. Well, you do have a nail in your head. It is not about the nail. Are you sure? Because, I mean, I'll bet if we got that out of there. Stop trying to fix it. No, I'm not trying to fix it. I'm just pointing out that maybe the nail is causing. You always do this. You always try to fix things when what I really need is for you to just listen. See, I don't think that is what you need. I think what you need is to get the nail out. See, you're not even listening now. Okay, fine. I will listen. Fine. It's just, sometimes it's like, there's this achy, I don't know what it is. And I'm not sleeping very well at all. And all my sweaters are snagged. I mean, all of them. That sounds really hard. It is. Thank you. Ow! Come on. If you would just... Don't! Right, so it's it's one of my favorite uh, videos because I think it's a great illustration of how... Uh, how we Christian people uh, are speaking to the people who aren't believers around us or feel like it, you, you, have, you have a problem that we had and that was removed from us and we have great joy, but the, the challenge is to get you to realize that you have the problem. It's the same problem. Sin is killing you. It's destroying you. Your life is a mess you don't have any purpose or plan or any future hope, largely because you got a nail in your soul. The beauty is that we have a Savior who likes to be nailed to things and to take it away. So when I, when I talk to groups of people, especially when there's unbelievers present, I just want to plead with you and say, don't you realize the thing that you're searching for all over is found in Christ, but you keep pushing it off, saying, no, 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 that's not the issue. It's not about the nail. It's about the nail. Jesus says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon, me, upon you and learn of me. For I'm meek and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. So the invitation to everybody who doesn't believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ every Christmas is the same. Do you want the nail removed or not? 
It's not hard. You just have to say to the Lord, have mercy, have compassion on me, a sinner. But look, most of the people I'm talking to here are like, yeah, no, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a Christian. And I, I don't want to just leave and say, oh, okay, yeah, I shouldn't do anything with the compassion of God, meaning I shouldn't reflect on it or think about it or anything like that. Before we get to the part where, yeah, I want to urge you, and the Bible urges us to show the compassion that God shows us, we Christians should say, um, I want to soak and receive and reflect on the compassion of God Myself, because just listen, let, let me make this argument to you, okay? Um, compassion is fueled by common experience. Do, do you understand what I mean by that? My compassion for your situation rises when I've been in your situation. Do you those of you who are parents, you remember before you were a parent, you were an amazing parent. Right? Like you had opinions about parenting all over the place. You'd go to the party, your friends had the little kid, and you'd come away and go, that's never happening when I have kids. You remember me? And the moment you have a kid, you're like, what is happening? And those people that you used to be really frustrated with because they're kid, they come over, they put their hand on their shoulder and say, I know what it's like, man. I know what it's like. You're like, I love you. I used to think you were an idiot, but now we're not, you know? Or if you had a really easy child, the first one, oh, now you're an expert. You're the person I pray that the Lord gives the little devil to next time, right? Because then you have the next child, and you're like, what happened to all the stuff, the books? They don't work with the second child. And people who had the hard child first are like, yeah, tell me about it, right? But they show compassion on you because they're like, I've, I've been there. When I spend time with any young parents, I go over to them and go, how you doing? And they're like, I'm so tired. I know, you're so tired, Right? Because I've been there. When you've been there, you show greater, you show greater compassion. What Christmas means then is that we have a God who didn't stand at a distance, but he entered in so that he's been there. There is not a challenge, a feeling, a struggle that you have in your heart a frustration you have with this fallen world that Jesus, our God, has not felt. Uh, you say, yeah, well, I have a hard time fighting temptation when I've been weak. Jesus is out in the wilderness and he not eats for, doesn't eat for a long time and Satan is tempting him to get out of doing this whole business. And he says, I'll just give you the kingdom now. You don't need to go through with it. Oh, he, knows, he knows what it's like to be hungry. to have the, the chief tempter come and offer you something in that moment. He knows. Yeah, but my friends, they stabbed me in the back. Yeah, he had his Judas, guys. Sat around a table with the guy, went on the camping trips with the guy. All The guy held the purse all that time. And he walked away in the end. Well, I feel all alone this Christmas. All of Jesus' friends leave him when he goes to the cross. There's nobody standing there going, well, I'm going to stick with you, man. None. In the hour of his deepest need, there was nobody there. I feel like I'm always giving up my, 
my rights for the sake of other people. I just want people to focus at some point on me. What, you, you don't know what it's like to always be the person who gives. Jesus was in heavenly, eternal, Trinitarian bliss with the Father and the Spirit, and he left all of that behind. All those rights behind to serve. Well, I, you don't, I've been mocked, though. Disregarded, Jesus is on a cross. And the people who were made by the word of his mouth walk in front of him, cursing him with words of their mouths. But my friend, my loved one has died. The only time Jesus wept, we're told in the Bible, is when his friend has died. There is not a single thing in your life that's happening right now that Jesus doesn't know about and feel with you because he's been there, man. If misery loves company, he's the best company you got. So when you sit alone under your Christmas tree during this time of the year or you wonder how in the world all this stuff is gonna turn out and you just have no idea about this or that, you need to understand that you don't sit alone. The compassionate God sits with you every second. And the reason that you can go forward in your life and the reason I can go forward in my life is because he says, don't be afraid for I am with you. Who's with me? The one who's been there already, right? Right, but when you talk about compassion in Scripture, one of the first things that you notice is, okay, this seems to be thing, a thing that we're commanded as Christians to do. In fact, to show in a very similar, in a similar way. I mean, Colossians chapter, Colossians chapter 3, uh, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts. So, so what's supposed to mark you as a Christian is, is your compassionate Heart. You say, well, what does that look like? Well, it's great that Jesus himself actually gives us an entire parable. And I'll just read it as we finish here, okay? Behold, the lawyer stood up to him. This is Luke 1, uh, 25. No, it's not. But. And behold, the lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, teacher, what shall I do to inherit Eternal life. He, he's not asking the question, guys, because he wants the answer. He wants to see whether or not Jesus is going to give him the right answer. He's a smart guy. He's been in all, this, in all the study groups. And he, he's going to ask him a question that he already believes he knows the answer to. So let's see what, whether or not you can get it right, Jesus. Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, what's written in the law? In the Ten Commandments. How do you read it? And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind. And love your neighbor as yourself is a great summary of what it means to be a genuine follower of God. And Jesus said to him, you've answered correctly. Do that, and you'll live. But he, the lawyer, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, 
And who is my neighbor? Let's parse the word neighbor. It certainly can't be the person two doors down. It must only be the one one door down. And what if I live in a neighborhood and there's somebody else outside the neighborhood? Then they can't be my member. And it's certainly not my neighbor is in the next town over. It's political speak, right? It's just, it, okay, we're going to try to we're going to try to play the semantic game. Jesus is like, not today, lawyer. Jesus replied, okay, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. This is one of the most dangerous roads in the ancient world because it had a bunch of craggy rocks on the side. And you're coming down from Jerusalem, which is the main city. Oftentimes, you would have collected some goods and things. And so you're loaded down with all sorts of stuff. And you come down to Jericho. And the, the, the robbers would always come out and try to beat you up. One of the things that they were really good at was beating you up, leaving you on the side of the road, and then going back into their hiding spot until someone comes along and tries to help you, and then they come and they beat you up, right? Two for one. So this man going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers. Of course he did. They stripped him, beat him, and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, right? The senior pastor. It's coming down the road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. And he's probably thinking to himself, look, if I go and I touch this guy, I'm going to be ceremonially, ceremonially unclean, and that's going to ruin my service to God. So I can't go over and actually help the guy because of my service to the Lord. I need to stay pure and undefiled and all that kind of stuff. So he's probably got religious justification, but Jesus doesn't give us the reason. What we're told is he sees... It goes by the other side. So likewise, a Levite, the associate pastor, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. So the guys who were supposed to help, they don't help at all. But a Samaritan, who of course, by them, they're half-breeds, the Samaritans, they intermarried with the people of the land. They ruined the law. But not just that, they claimed that they had the right religion and they made their own little temple up on, in Samaria. And so we don't like them at all. In fact, we won't even travel through Samaria. We'll go around it because nobody wants to be near them. But in the story, Jesus is like a Samaritan and all the people listening said, boo. As he journeyed, he came to where he was and when he saw him, Splank Nidzimai. And he went to him. He bound his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. He set him on his own animal. So he's walking now. He brought him to an inn, took care of him. Next day, he took out two denarii. That's two days wages. So whatever you get paid in a day, double it. That's how much money he gave. And he gave them to the innkeeper, saying, take care of him. And whatever more you spend, I'll repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among robbers? And he said, the lawyer, what was that? The one who showed him mercy. The one who showed him what? Compassion. Uh, you, go, go do likewise. You know, people look at this parable. There's a lot of people who interpret this parable, and they look at it, and they, they say to themselves, you know what this parable's really about? This parable's really about Jesus, because isn't Jesus the one, the Samaritan, who comes down, and he sees us on the side? We've been beaten up and left for dead, and he comes, and he 
picks us up and he saves us and he does all this stuff for us and he pays for our future and takes care of all of our needs. And that's not what the, that's not what the passage means, but you can understand why they put it there. And I think it's on purpose that it looks like Jesus because listen very closely to me. The objects of God's compassion are known by their willingness to show compassion. The objects of God's compassion are known by the willingness to show God's compassion. So who's your neighbor? Who's my neighbor? The world is filled with harassed and helpless people, increasingly so. We see them all over the place. Not just on the sides of roads. In our workplaces and there are homes, our schools. We walk by them all the time. The lonely, the destitute, the sad, the needy, the rich person who is lost. So what do you want to do? You just want to turn away? I mean, we're the ones who received the gift of one who didn't turn away, right? See where God's calling you to show compassion this Christmas and give it best best gift you could possibly give. Let me pray for us. Father, I'm thankful for my... uh, my friends, I'm thankful for the word of the Lord. I'm thankful, Father, that we can um, talk about what Christmas uh, shows us about who you are, what you're like. And ultimately, Lord, I, I pray that um, our, our church and our, everyone who calls them by the name, themselves by the name of Jesus, that, that there would be a wave of compassion that flows out of Harvest Bible Chapel into the streets around us, into the lives around us. You have placed each and every one of us in a unique place in our lives. And you have people there, Father, who need, who need our compassion. God, we, I pray that that splank, that splank nidzamai would happen, right? That it would just overwhelm us. That the knowledge of what we've received in Christ would ultimately overwhelm us so that we might show it, Father. Make it a natural thing. And we thank you most of all that this Christmas we celebrate the fact that you had compassion on us. We thank you for our Lord Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the weekly sermon podcast from Harvest Bible Chapel in Chicago. For more information and how to get connected to one of our campuses, go to harvestbible.org.